I was once watching an NFL head coach give a press conference after a game, and he said something that I still remember to this day. He talked about how when working with his players, he tried to instill in them an understanding of distinguishing between that which is interesting and that which is important. As the NFL season would go on, there would always be headlines, there would always be rumors, there would always be editorial articles talking about the season. But the coach said that he wanted his players to be able to recognize those things that are merely interesting compared to the things that are important. Think about the difference between those two things. The things that are interesting are the things that merely amuse us for a few minutes, and then we move on. It makes no impact on us. But the things that are important are the things that demand response, the things that demand change. This NFL head coach, he wanted his players to focus on what was important so that they could focus and train and practice and prepare for the upcoming games. Because the things that are important are the things that result in action. As you reflect in your life, what are the things for you that are merely interesting versus the things that are important? And are they the right things? Do you properly understand the interesting things as merely just interesting? And do you live your life in such a way that you understand the important things to truly be important and you gear your actions in your life as a result? Unfortunately, when it comes to Christmas especially, people see the Christmas story as not really something that's important, but unfortunately just something that they may find interesting. That the birth of Jesus is, well, it's interesting. It's a nice story. It's, it's nice to hear how Jesus was born in a stable, and, and he was laid in a manger, and he was born in Bethlehem, and there were shepherds. And, and these are all things that we are tempted to find as, as just merely interesting. But God doesn't want us to see the birth of Christ as merely an interesting thing. He wants us to understand the birth of Christ as an important thing, so important that the way that we understand the birth of Christ should result in action from us. That the way that we think about Jesus and how he was born and why he was born and the implications of that birth, he wants his people, God wants his people to understand the birth of his son as important in such a way that it results in life change. So this morning, whether or not you are a follower of Christ or maybe just an outside observer of this Christianity thing, this morning you have to be confronted with the reality that the birth of Christ is not just interesting, but it's important. And the birth of Christ demands a response from each and every one of you. And that's not just me saying that. It's not just me as a pastor deciding that the birth of Christ is important. There's something specifically that occurred at the nativity that reveals to all who read the nativity story that this, that this birth of Christ is important and it demands a response. In the one element of Christ's birth, there are many elements. In fact, all elements in some way point to, to the importance of Jesus' birth and what we should do about it. But the one element specifically that we're going to look at this morning is the coming of the Magi, the coming of the wise men. Often when we set up our nativity sets or we look at the nativity, we see the wise men again as just another nice prop. 
Isn't that interesting that while Jesus was born, and here's gold and frankincense and myrrh, the three kings who came from Orient far because they followed a star, we see that as just fun details of the story where the Bible makes clear that the coming of the Magi give a weight and a value and importance, a treasure trove of implications with Christ's birth that says that God wants us to understand the birth of Christ in a specific way because of the coming of the Magi. And we're going to talk about what those specific ways are this morning and specifically what we as people are meant to do as a result of it. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And our passage this morning will be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as you're turning to Matthew, notice that this is the first sermon in our Nativity series where we are looking primarily at Matthew instead of Luke. Out of the four Gospels, two of the Gospels choose to give the story of Jesus' birth, Luke and Matthew. Luke was a physician in ancient times, so Luke naturally focuses on many biological aspects of the details of Jesus' birth. Look at the details that Matthew gives of Jesus' birth. We often overlook how simple and to the point Matthew is when describing the birth of Jesus, specifically in the last verse of chapter 1 before our passage in chapter 2. Look at everything that Matthew has to say about Jesus being born in Bethlehem in verse 25 of chapter 1. But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's the story from Matthew's perspective. He doesn't talk about the shepherds. He doesn't talk about traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about Caesar Augustus and the census. Matthew chooses not to give any of those details of the actual delivery of Jesus because Matthew is the gospel of the king, as this church has learned over the years. Matthew wants to focus on Jesus not just as Messiah, although he is the chosen one Messiah, not just as Savior, although he is the Savior who takes away the sins of the world, Matthew, in his gospel, wants to show that Jesus is the king. He wants to show the importance of Jesus as the royal ruler of God's creation. That's why all in Matthew chapter 1, what do we see? We see a royal genealogy defending the royal birthright of Jesus as the earthly political king of God's people. And it's also why in chapter 2, after giving the genealogy, Matthew essentially skips over the actual birth of Christ himself and now focuses on the coming of a group of people called Magi. Most of you probably remember from previous sermons that Magi is a word that means wise men, that these were people that came from the East. In fact, the word Magi is probably originally a Persian word used to describe their version of a tribe of people like the Levites, a group of people that would serve in the religious duties and the royal functions of that nation. But because the Persian, the Eastern religions, were not focused on God's law, that meant that these priests and religious rulers, they tended to focus more on astrology and looking at the stars. 
these magi, even though the origin is probably from Persia, there were examples and versions of magi also in Babylon and in other areas in the Arabian Peninsula. We have many examples in ancient history of groups of magi from various countries traveling to different parts of the ancient world to visit and pay homage to a king or to a governor. The focus here is that these magi, there's a lot we don't know about them. And guess what, Graham Emanuel Baptist Church? That's okay. When the Bible doesn't tell us something about someone or something, we need to be willing to say that the Bible doesn't tell us. That the Bible chose, God chose that that was not important in that moment, and instead we are meant to focus on other things. So instead of trying to figure out the names of these men or how many men they were or exactly where they came from, we are simply going to recognize that this was a group of religious wise people from either Persia or Babylon, but somewhere in the east, who decided that based on what they had seen in the stars, they needed to come to Israel to see the one who was born king of the Jews. That means that we have three points in today's bulletin. Three specific importances, three specific implications that the coming of the Magi signify about the birth of Christ and how we should respond to it. The first one is going to be this. The first point is going to be that the coming of the Magi is going to reveal Christ as a fulfillment of prophecy. Read along silently with me as I read the first two verses in Matthew chapter 2. It says that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, you're going to notice that Matthew always likes to say Bethlehem of Judea. He likes to focus on the fact that this is in Judea. There's going to be a reason for that. But it says that after he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, not Herod, king of the Jews, not Herod, the Jewish king, like other people in ancient history have called him, but simply King Herod, That after these days of King Herod, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Apologies. What's interesting about this is... It's tempting for us to think of these wise men as people who have been following Christ, maybe in some way, like off in the distance, that maybe these were real-life Jewish people who were just still in exile in Babylon. That's a common theory that sometimes you'll hear from pastors or books. The reason for that is because in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Daniel is specifically called the chief over the Magi. We see that in the slide that says Daniel chapter 2. Verse 48, he's described as chief over the Magi. Sometimes it's tempting, thank you, Pastor Jay, uh, sometimes it's tempting for us to uh, see these Magi. I never have this problem in the first service. Because I love to sing, too. <clears throat> never know what you're going to get in second service. But anyways... Um, It's tempting for us to think that these wise men, that they were just following Christ on their own, that maybe these were Jewish people who uh, they saw this star and they were coming to honor him. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what it does tell us that the reason why these wise men came to Israel or to Judea is because they saw a star that they saw as incredibly important. 
The reason why these wise men saw the star as important is because they recognized the star as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Even not only the wise men, but even ancient cultures around Judea in that time, they understood that there had been prophesied among the Jewish people in the Old Testament this star that would signify the coming of a king. And the reason for that is because when we think of wise men seeing a star and coming to see a king, we always assume the first place that happened was in Matthew chapter 2. And that's not the first time that a wise man in the Bible sees a star that signifies God's king. The first time that it happens is actually in Numbers chapter 24. Turn with me to Numbers. The reason why Numbers is called the book of Numbers is because it's referring to the genealogies or the records that are being recorded in this book of the Israelites after the Exodus. But really, the book of Numbers is a book full of stories of how God has led his people through wandering out of Egypt into the promised land. But one of the most amazing chapters in Numbers is chapter 24, where one of Israel's enemies attempts to do spiritual warfare against them by hiring a magical hitman to produce curses on Israel. It sounds like I'm exaggerating. That's exactly what it is. His name was Balaam. If you're trying to remember who Balaam was, Balaam was the one with the donkey and the one who the donkey was able to speak on the way to pronounce these curses on Israel. But the more impressive miracle is that Balaam, a non-saved Gentile person, paid by Israel's enemies to give curses to the nation of Israel, when he opens his mouth, God inspires this unsaved pagan to not give curses to God's people, but instead to give blessings. Balaam would have been understood, even though he wasn't called a magi at this time in history, he would have been understood as a type of magi person. And as he gives these blessings under God's ruling, under God's leading of his words, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he gives one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. This is where Balaam says, I see him, but not now. Notice how he's referring to a person that he sees. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And look at the beginning of verse 18. It says that Edom shall be dispossessed. Remember that part about Edom being dispossessed. Edom, that refers to the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. This prophecy in the Old Testament in Numbers is re repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the coming Messiah is referred to this rising star, this rising sun of righteousness. In fact, Charles Wesley, when he wrote Hark the Herald Angel Sings, is actually Quoting this verse in his original lyrics, he calls Christ the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness because of this verse. We in America, we often change it to S-O-N to make it about Jesus, but it was already about Jesus because Wesley was quoting this verse in Malachi where Jesus is described as this rising star, this rising sun. We also see skipping down to Luke chapter 1, verse 78. 
And in Ephesians, in 2 Peter 1.19, we see examples of Jesus being referred to as a rising sun or a rising star. And most of all, really, the nail in the coffin is when Jesus himself calls himself the rising star in Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus calls himself that rising star that is mentioned by Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. He says that he's the descendant of David, the root and the bright morning star. The Jewish people understood that the coming of God's king would be associated with a new star that would appear. Even people as far out in Persia and Babylon, where God's people had been exiled, but where God's people were still living in the traditions of God's people were still known. So much so, just as a few fun examples, we even see from non-biblical sources that the Roman Empire was aware of this coming king. A man named Philo, who lived in early church history, he talks about this person, this this rumor that circulated in the ancient empire of how there was going to be this Jewish king, this Jewish ruler who would come to subdue all the nations. A Jewish man who was not a Christian but lived during the time of the New Testament named Josephus, he also talks about how the Roman emperor was always nervous about this prophecy that supposedly there would come this mighty governor to habitate and rule over all the earth. This was something that even non-Jewish people were aware of. They knew that there would be a king to come out of Judah, and they knew that it would be associated with a star. That's why these wise men coming from the east, seeing the star, deciding that they're going to travel hundreds of miles over the course of five months to see this born king of the Jews, that's why it matters. The fact that they would make this trip, they just weren't on a stargazing opportunity. They weren't just going out to go on a road trip. They were willing to risk their lives and spend an entire year of their life traveling from their home in order to see what they saw as a fulfillment of prophecy as a result of this star. Therefore, the Magi coming to see Jesus shows us that God had a plan from the beginning. It didn't just spring up out of midair. It's not like God changed course or changed his mind, and poof, here's the story of redemption. God had been talking about the story of redemption all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And he had been pointing to it and alluding to it and preparing for it and progressively revealing it all throughout the Old Testament, including in Numbers chapter 24. So much so that even the unsaved could recognize the clarity of God's word and recognize the sign that God was giving them and recognizing that they needed to respond to it. If even unsaved people could see the clarity of God's word and see that God demanded something of them and that they needed to respond to the coming of God's king, we also should be willing to to respond and to see the clarity of what God is pointing to and how God is one who fulfills his promises. Just for fun too, also, Psalm chapter 72, verse 11. The coming of the wise men is predicted even more clearly. Talking about kings as far as the east is from the west, Tarshish to the far west, the coastlands to the east, how they will come and render him tribute The kings of Sheba and Seba bringing gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. The coming of the Magi was predicted in the Old Testament rather explicitly. And you may be thinking, ha-ha, Pastor Stephen, nope, I caught you. See, I've heard about the Magi, you might think, and I know some of you are thinking that the Magi aren't kings. They're wise men. 
They're not the we three kings. That is true. But the magi always, in ancient context, represented a king. They served the king, they were in the court of the king, and they would be sent as ambassadors and delegates to other parts of the world on behalf of the king. So even though the Magi are not kings of themselves, they carry with them the weight and the authority. Uh, they, they carry with them the importance of foreign kings giving these gifts on their behalf. That is a common universal practice of Magi in ancient times. So we should understand a king aspect, that there are kings who are sending delegates to sit down and lay down and give gifts to the birth of Jesus. If even foreign kings are willing to honor and worship God's Messiah, so should we. Let's now look at the second point. The second point, transitioning from what I just said, shows that the coming of the Magi reveals Christ as king. And when we say king here, we're not talking about spiritual king. We're not talking about emotional king. We're not talking about the kind of king that you talk about when you're watching sports and you say, that guy's awesome, he's the king. That's not the kind of king that we're referring to here with Jesus. We're talking about the kind of royal, political, physical, tangible, consequential kingship of Christ. The kind of kingship who he carries a scepter because he uses it to beat people down and subdue them under his power and his strength. The kind of king who actually has boots on the ground. This is the kind of kingship that is being described of Jesus, especially when the Magi notice they don't follow the star into Bethlehem in verse 2. And the reason for that is because the star isn't leading them yet. They simply see the rising of a star. They see a, a star rise up in the east or in the dawn, and they know that that means that they need to go to Judea. Remember, the Magi are already in the east. If they saw a star in the east and they followed a star in the east, they would be going in the opposite direction of Israel. The star is not following them yet. They just recognize the importance of the star and its prophetic fulfillment. So as a result, they come to Judea and they don't go to Bethlehem because they're not familiar with Micah chapter 5. They just assume, well, hey, the king of the Jews must be in the capital of the Jews, which is Jerusalem. And they come into Jerusalem, they speak to Herod, they say, where is this king born, king of the Jews? Herod isn't called king of the Jews in this passage. And he's also not called the born king of the Jews, because guess what? Herod was not Jewish. Herod was not a descendant of Jacob. Herod was a descendant of Esau. Herod was an Edomite. And Herod also knew, as everyone did at this time, he also knew about Numbers chapter 24. He knew about the prophecy of a king, a descendant of Jacob, who would displace the Edomites, and that included Herod. So when Herod heard about this king born of the Jews, that's hitting a soft spot for him. And not only is Herod unhappy, ain't nobody happy, as they would say back then. Because Herod, whenever he felt threatened, he killed people. Famously, he killed his own two sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. He killed them because he falsely saw them as a threat to his throne. When he took the throne, he killed most of the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, because he saw them as a threat. 
We have outside of the Bible a very accurate historical source that refers to Caesar once saying that he would rather be Herod's pig than be his son. That's how dangerous it was to be Herod's son because if Herod felt threatened, he would kill people. That's why Jerusalem is unhappy as a result of Herod being unhappy. And so he inquires his religious leaders. Obviously not all the religious leaders because there weren't that many left. And they tell him about Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which ultimately they're misquoting because they're combining with 2 Samuel 5, 2, referring to the birth of a king, referring to a king who is going to shepherd his people. The Bible consistently refers to Jesus as a political king. We see this in one example in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, where it talks about the woman giving birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations. That's not symbolic. That's not metaphorical. That's not, a, um, uh, that's not reading according to genre, meaning that it means something than what it claims to be. It means that he is literally going to rule all the nations. And we should expect that to be literally fulfilled. And guess what? Not with a soft little fuzzy shepherd's crook. But the next time Jesus comes back as king, he's ruling with a rod of iron is how he's described in Revelation chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, refers to Jesus as the government being upon his shoulders. Too often people say, well, Jesus is king because he's king in our heart. And we're the church. And because we're the hands and feet of Jesus, we can love the world and we can serve the world and we can impact the world and make Jesus king of the world. Guess what, everyone? We are not strong enough and good enough to be king of the world on Jesus' behalf. Only Jesus is good enough and strong enough to rule and conquer and lead this earth on his own behalf. He doesn't need our help. The only commission that he's given to the church is to proclaim the coming of the king, to warn the world about the coming of the king, to show the good news of the salvation that the king brings. Because the next time he comes, he's bringing destruction. He's putting the government, that's a very physical, that's a very tangible word that's not used often, especially not in the New Testament, to describe the church, says that the government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase, again, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Herod was scared because he understood the words of God to be referring to a literal king. We should too. We should understand God's word the way that the authors and the audiences of Scripture understood God's word, which is as literal as that Jesus is coming as a physical, tangible king. It has not been fulfilled yet now, but it will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back again, as described in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. When he comes, he brings his millennial kingdom. He reigns on this earth out of Jerusalem. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Jacob is giving prophecies. He's giving blessings to his 12 sons. And when he gets to Judah... He actually foreshadows what Balaam is going to say by saying that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. People have attempted to have the scepter depart from Judah by saying that it departs from Judah and it's now in the church. It's now in Rome. It's now in the ecclesiastical identity of the church. No, God's king is always going to be a Jewish man. It's always going to be a descendant of Judah. It's always going to be a physical, live, actual person All the other promises in Genesis 49, they come true literally. This one is also going to come true literally. 
He's not going to depart from Judah and the ruler's staff from between his feet until, your version might actually say, until Shiloh comes. The ESV says until tribute comes. And it's referring to until there is peace on earth. When we sing the song, Joy to the World, we think we're talking about Jesus' first coming. We're actually talking about Jesus' second coming. Let every heart prepare him room. Let all the nations bow down. Let all the curse be found across the world be gone. That's going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back the second time. We celebrate Christmas because Christmas is a taste of what we're going to get from God's Messiah that's going to start with his first coming, end with the second coming, and the Magi indicates that. It shows importance to Jesus' birth, not just that it's a nice story or an interesting story, but that it's an important story. The Magi and even Herod were very excited and very afraid respectively, about the birth of this king because they saw him as a real, true, powerful king. We should live our life here on earth with the same balance of excitement and godly fear that the king is coming back and he's coming with a rod of iron and he's coming to administer justice and he's coming to set things right and he's coming to put the government on his shoulders. In the meantime, we need to worship and honor him with everything that we do. We need to do everything we can to point people to the good news of Jesus Christ until that judgment comes. And then finally, for the third point, the coming of the Magi reveals Christ as one for the whole world. We see this because after Herod tells the wise men to go to Bethlehem so that, and to tell him so that he can worship them too, after this happens, the star, um, in some way, it comes down, it becomes miraculous in some way because it's able to actually lead them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's only a five-mile journey. There's no way a star in the sky could indicate five miles in its trajectory. And it's not only leading in front of them like a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, but it's leading them to Bethlehem and specifically the house, not the stable, where not the baby, but the child Jesus is now with his mother. He's probably somewhere between six months and two years old. We say six months because it takes about six months for the journey from the east to get to Bethlehem. And we say probably no older than two years because you'll remember Herod ends up killing all the children in Bethlehem two years and younger. So he's somewhere in that range between six months and two years. But the wise men come, they see him, they are filled with joy. It says that they are filled with exceeding joy in verse 10. And going into the house in verse 11, they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him. They open up their treasure boxes and they offer him gifts. These are royal gifts. We see these gifts given all the time in the Bible and outside of the Bible of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These aren't uber symbolic. Don't make too much of the symbolism of each these are three typical gifts that were always given to kings. The importance of these gifts is not what each one individually signifies, but collectively that they indicate that these are gifts for a royal king. They give him the frankincense, they give him the myrrh, they give him the gold. And after being warned, verse 12, in a dream not to return to Herod, they depart to their own country by another way. And it doesn't tell us what that country is. It doesn't tell us what that way is. Because the important part is not the Magi. The important part is the baby. 
The irony is that the wise men came to, Beth, uh, to Bethlehem to find the king, the king of the Jews. And how do we remember the wise men today? We falsely call them the kings and we forget that Jesus is the king. The point of this passage with the, with the wise men is to show that there is importance in the birth of Jesus, even so much so that people from the corners of the world, Gentiles, non-God-fearers, recognize the power and importance of this fulfillment of prophecy that God has done. All throughout Isaiah, we have several examples. Isaiah chapter 11 mentions all of the people of his remnant from these foreign Gentile nations that he's, sometimes, that he's someday going to gather to himself. We see in Isaiah 14 verse 1, we see again, God is going to graft in, he's going to attach foreign nations and to his people, Jacob. He's going to include the nations of the world. This was begun at the beginning when God gave his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22. He told them that through you and through your descendant, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God's plan was always global. God's plan was always universal. Even though he used the nation of Israel and he used the tribe of Judah to bring about the fulfillment of that plan, the coming of the Magi shows that the coming of Jesus is a coming of Jesus for the world. That's the third point. Christ as one for the whole world. And here's your big idea. That the coming of the Magi shows that Jesus is worthy of worship. He's important. He demands everything from us, everyone, everywhere. You know, the tragedy of the story of the Magi, there's so much that we don't know. But what we do know from God's word is that the Magi, they opened up the boxes of their treasures for this king. It never says that they opened up their hearts. It never says that they offered to the newborn king their souls, their lives. They just offered him their gold and their frankincense. King Jesus once more. These men, they went back to their country. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know if they chose to follow Christ as king, but you can choose for yourself today whether or not you will bow down before Jesus as king and honor him and worship him and follow him. You can make that decision by recognizing that you're a sinner incapable of saving yourself, by recognizing that this king came first as a savior and as a shepherd to live a perfect life on your behalf, to die on your behalf, to rise on the third day, and by faith to receive that free gift of forgiveness by faithfully repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Do that and you will be saved. Do that and you will be part of the kingdom of God. Don't do that and at best, you will be like these wise men who saw Jesus, who saw his importance, who responded in some way but didn't maybe respond in every way. Like the people who sing over the radio at the mall, they sing about Jesus, they sing the Christmas carols, but they don't follow Christ in their heart. The birth of Jesus is not just an interesting story. It's an important story because it is the story of the gospel. And it's an indicator of the future. So let's all bow down in worship and give our all by faith to the coming King. Pray with me.